Hi, you're listening to The Why Between the Lines, a podcast produced by Refresh Marketing, Australia's longest-running copywriting agency. I'm your host, Natalie Sia, and in today's episode, I'm speaking to Natalie Phillips-Mason, the founder and lead consultant of Inclusive Change. Last year, we helped Natalie articulate her message when we wrote the content for her brand new website, and we really enjoyed learning about her journey. So here she is today to tell us more about what she does as a strategic change partner who focuses on neuroinclusivity, how she got started in her 20-year career in change management, and why she's passionate about advocating for neuroinclusivity in workplaces. To start off, could you just tell me more about inclusive change and what it's all about? Yeah, hi Nash. Well, firstly, thank you for inviting me on to have a chat. So inclusive change has its foundation in organisational change management and there's probably three streams that sit within the umbrella of inclusive change. The one that um, I'm focused on probably quite a bit and have been over the past year is in the area of neuroinclusion. So that is working with organisations to educate their leaders and their teams about what it is that makes, that, that creates kind of diversity within workplaces that already exists. So that is thinking about the cognitive styles that people bring to the workplace. Um, we talk a lot about brain wiring and a lot of the different conditions that sit under the neurodivergence umbrella. So You probably have heard about neurodiversity and quite a bit of conversation in media around different personalities starting to talk more vocally around understanding how their brain is wired um, as adults. So neuroinclusion is really about being proactive in understanding all the different cognitive profiles and different brain wiring that exists naturally within an organisation. So that's one really important stream. Um, And there is a very strong change management focus that sits under that. And then I do quite, um, I guess, what you'd call traditional um, strategic and and implementation when it comes to change management. And then I also have a focus on creating, I guess, awareness and creating some a shift in the change in how we see customer experience when it comes to different customer profiles. So a lot of this is about diversity and difference that you can't necessarily see. So that's both within the workplace and within the marketplace. And so those three streams have become a really core focus to the work that I do now. I'm going to ask you a lot more about um, neurodiversity later on, but first let's just dive into change management because you were doing, well, I did a little bit of stalking uh, on your LinkedIn (laughs) and I noticed that you've always been in change management for over 20 years. In fact, I think you got started as a graduate, um, straight into change management. Yep. How did you get into this area? Was it um, intentional or was it something that happened by chance? Like, how did you get into it? Yeah, so I fell into it, is the honest answer. Um, So I was completing a double degree. I was studying psychology um, and marketing. And I guess it was the first year that those two degrees, those two two bachelor degrees had been combined. So we were the first year that was kind of combining a set of disciplines. And um, I really had to, I guess, make a choice by the end of that fourth year, whether I wanted to become a psychologist, whether I wanted to become a marketer. 
and we literally had um, the consultancies come and speak to the university doing their graduate um, rara um, yeah. <laughs> presentations and friends of mine said, why don't we go along and have a look? I had no idea what change management was, had never heard about it and went along, thought, okay, well, they send you overseas to train you. That kind of sounds cool. Um, that's what matters. That's what mattered. <laughs> that's what mattered to me um, at the time and the more I learnt about the consulting practice and the discipline, particularly of, I guess, the people focus of change management, the more it resonated, not only to what I had been studying, but to where I, you know, felt um, an attraction in terms of the kind of work I wanted to do. So I literally went along um, through my CV in the ring, had some successful interviews, got a job uh, six months before I graduated and just went along for the ride. And that was literally my foray into change. I really had not understood very much about it at all. It just, it sounded, because it was so human-centric and so people-focused, it sounded like it would probably take the best of what I'd been studying from a psychology perspective and what I'd been studying from a marketing perspective. And I got the chance to combine the two. And for you to stay in it, like you fell into it, but it's something that you stayed in mm. for more than two decades. And not a lot of people can do that, like fall into something yep. and just stay on for so long. Yeah. So I think what has been the really interesting part for me is because I started in consulting, consulting, you know, you have a chance to experience a lot of diverse projects a lot of diverse clients. You can be working in, you know, completely different, it almost feels like a different job every time you go into a new project. So I I think what I've learned about myself is I'm actually really well suited to being a career consultant um, because I do love walking into a business and looking at their landscape with fresh eyes and just bringing whatever perspective I can bring to that. And so I feel quite grateful actually that I was able to start my career with such a broad, very strong discipline and very targeted discipline, but broad clients and broad um, exposure. And so um, I managed, you know, I, I think that was a really fantastic start for me because it gave me such a solid upbringing around the discipline of change. Um, I then went overseas and practiced as a freelancer um, for a number of years, came back, joined another consulting house and got a very different experience there and then went out on my own for a number of years. I think it was 16 or 17 years where I just went out and consulted on my own, still obviously doing change the whole way through, but very much working under my own steed and um, able to kind of pick and choose the clients that I wanted to work with and was quite autonomous. And this was not inclusive change? This was not inclusive change. I think everything up until really last year was probably setting the stage for this just being the right time to be delving much more into other aspects of change management and combining that with neuroinclusion. But I think as a change practitioner, really everything you do is about having a people-first lens on the work that we do. So everything is about, regardless of the nature of the change program that we are helping to facilitate, we are the custodians of the people in that workplace. And we have diverse stakeholders all the way through. I mean, it would be similar with the work 
You do. Every client has different challenges and different issues and different opportunities. Um, Your stakeholders are always different. And so change is very much about trying to almost sit between the leadership and the strategy and what the organisation is trying to to reach because they're always going from place A to place B. We sit between that and, well, this is the way I see it anyway, we sit between the leadership and the strategy and try and bring that strategy to life for the people that actually come to work every day. So we have to make a connection with our audiences. Um, We have to have an appreciation for the fact that people don't all communicate in the same way, don't all learn in the same way, and we'll all have different responses to change. Some people adopt change really quickly and there are other people that take longer for a whole lot of different reasons. So it's always been very human-centric, even before, you know, human design became a a discipline within its own right. So it just made a whole lot of sense. And so I stuck to that all the way through because I actually love the work. And is it through that whole journey of um, managing change with people, was that how it led you to this passion about neurodiversity and neuroinclusivity? So neuroinclusion probably came about more so from a personal journey. So we have mixed neurotypes in my family or what I now understand as mixed neurotypes, um, but it was really my um, parenting journey and parenting one of my daughters. Some of the different um, peaks and troughs and challenges of how she thinks and how she processes and just working through really a diagnostic process that took probably close to 11 years before we really uncovered her neurodivergent wiring and why she thinks the way that she does and how she solves, um, how she sees the world and how she interacts with her environment. So that's been a journey probably over, I'd say, at least 11 years. And really over the past few years, I, it just, I love to learn. So I kind of immersed myself more so in the last few years, just really trying to understand more about neurodivergence and this concept of neurodiversity and and how it all plays out for us, both within the workplace, but also within wider society. And the more I learned about it, the more I thought it was the most incredibly fascinating topic, but it was also something that I knew workplaces were not probably um, in a position to understand very much because we don't, it's not something we've talked about very widely within corporate. Um, it's not something we've ever talked very widely about within the change community, but it is such an important part of human diversity. And we are learning so much more about it through the neurodiversity movement and through more um, adults who are coming out talking about their lived experiences. And then you've got a lot of parents who you know, are working through different challenges with their own children as well. So it's kind of was this perfect storm, to be honest, and I'd been incubating some ideas and then had an opportunity last August to really turn those ideas into practice. So that's how inclusive change came about. Um, so it's very much combining two, two experiences, one workplace and one lived um, at, at, from my perspective and, and really trying to add my voice and make a difference in both of those areas. How's your own journey in educating people about this been like? Were there ever a time when you felt like it was quite frustrating that you couldn't get through to some people about it? Or um, Well, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm 
kind of, I feel like I'm still really in startup with the work that, that I'm doing, even though I'm doing some pretty, uh, working with some amazing clients. I think this is where the um, concept of change comes into play quite, quite importantly here, because I come from always giving people the benefit of the doubt. And quite simply in my mind, I don't think people can really engage or understand the topic that they haven't had an opportunity to to interact with or they haven't had an opportunity to have a conversation about in a safe space. It's a very personal topic, but it's also very stigmatized. And so much like mental health and wellbeing has, you know, become one of those topics, particularly in society, but also very much in corporate and and especially amplified through COVID. It's a topic that more and more people are starting to talk about. But my approach to this is to talk about it in a way that reflects the way that I've learned about it as well. And so it is very much about having a conversation. And I think that that is a very similar concept from a change perspective. It's not always about PowerPoint slides and theory and methodology. It's actually about finding a way to connect people with a topic, giving them an opportunity to ask questions, making sure that that conversation is always authentic. And in this space, very specifically, making sure that lived experience and and people who are, are living through a neurodivergent lens are the ones leading the conversation as much as possible. So have you ever encountered people who, or organisations that, having done that, like to understand how diverse their employees are and how um, different different people's needs are and find it challenging to you know, come up with a solution that includes everyone? I think there's no, so there's no magic bullet, there's no formula, there's no quick fix. I think the most important part is to listen to or to be to engage with a conversation around what sits behind neurodistinct brains and um and actually I think for me it's more so and more important to have a conversation that says we all have our own unique brains they're all wired differently because they're kind of like fingerprints you and I don't have the same brain wiring and this is no different um so we all come to work with our own cognitive profile. We all have strengths. We all have areas that, that we find a bit more challenging. Um, there are people within our workplaces that have additional support requirements that might be simple and they might be complex. We're all different. The most important thing to me is about making sure that, and, and I the work that I do is with clients who are ready to have that conversation because clients are at all different stages of maturity when they're thinking about this part of their inclusion, diversity and belonging strategies. Because for the most part, you know, we've always focused on diversity that we can see more than diversity that we can't necessarily see. So this is a behaviour change and a mindset change um, initiative. And there'll be organisations who are really ready and happy and willing to start that dialogue. And there are organisations that will take a little bit longer. Um, I think at the end of the day, what we know globally is that at least 20% of the global population identify with a neurodivergence. um, And that is probably an underestimation. It's a very personal, it's very personal information to share in an organisation because it's so stigmatised and there's a lot of trauma that comes with 
the experience of having to have these conversations within the workplace for some people. So we're in a, I, I guess we're in a bit of a um, environment where self-advocacy is going to start to become really important, but it's such a personal journey for people. And if they've been burnt in the past, they're going to continue masking and not wanting to disclose information that they feel may disadvantage them in the workplace. So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. So for me, it is really all about the start of having a conversation and then the organisation, you know, working with their own employees to figure out what works for them and what works best for all their employees. And the interesting thing is that what works for a neurodivergent workforce actually works predominantly for everybody. So it's less about designing for a minority cohort and more about designing for everybody and then understanding that there's equitable practice that sits on top of that for some of your workforce. So you mentioned that um, it depends on the clients as well on whether they are ready or not for this journey. Um, what do you feel so far? Like, do you think more clients are, uh, I mean, more people or more organizations in general are becoming ready or what do you think of the progression? Do you think there's a lot more work to be done and things should move a little bit faster or are you happy with how things are going? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> no one in this space is ever happy with the pace because we'd all like to see things shift a lot quicker than than they are. Um, I'm really heartened by the number of inquiries and the um, appetite for the topic, both within the retail space and also, so from a customer experience, but also within corporate. Hmm. Um, so it's definitely, it's definitely on the agenda and it's on the radar, but there's a difference between organisations wanting to start the process and investing in the time um, and the resource to kick that off. And um, there are some organisations that will take longer to do that. Um, there are other organisations that already have really active employee resource groups within this space. So there are organisations that are already doing active work. I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation and I think the more people that are advocating and providing that really strong allyship, the more we can start to create a shift. It's like anything, you need to have the right timing for the right conversations um, and you need to have fertile ground to want to not just talk about it, actually do something about it because this is a topic that you don't just come along and listen to for an hour and then, you know, you might pick it up again in a year. Once you start the journey, it does become a bit of a change process that comes with it, but it also needs to work with the pace. Um, th there's a lot of different facets of this topic and every organisation's different and every organisation has different operational priorities and strategic priorities. But I think what we're seeing is this kind of perfect storm of more adults uncovering more about their, um, their wiring yeah. later in life. We're finding more parents with children who are being diagnosed um, at a greater rate. And I think as a society, we've got a lot more emphasis on understanding what our humanity means in all in all facets of diversity, but it's going to take time. And I think we're probably a number of years here behind 
some of the European countries, particularly the UK. Right. So I think I think they're all opportunities, which is the good. It's the glass half full looking, yeah, way of looking at it. They're all this heaps of opportunity here, yeah. which is exciting. Well, I'm always curious to know what keeps people going. So like through this 20 years of doing what you've been doing and being a um, advocate for neuroinclusion and neurodiverse workplaces and the marketplace, have you ever felt like that you want to give up? I think um, <laughs> not that I'd like to give up, but there's certainly been points where you go, right, well, you know, I'm my value set is very much about being authentic and being genuine. And so I have a very um, genuine purpose behind what I do. But it can be, you know, I think it's definitely got its challenges. I think there is the number of conversations um, and throwaway comments that people have made unintentionally really around some of the really um, the language that still is so embedded with what we understand because we've been exposed to really stereotypical views of neurodivergence. Um, so that is what I find probably the most challenging. And so I have this um, innate desire to want to help people understand and, and destigmatize and bust all those myths that are out there. But there's so much unconscious bias that sits within people in this space because a lot of people have only been exposed to a certain to a certain view of what this is. And I think that for me is what is so stimulating to keep going is that I know that there is so much more to neurodivergence than what I think a majority of the population understands. Yeah. So that's honestly what keeps me really motivated to keep going, but also the feedback that I'm getting from my clients and the feedback that I'm getting from retail associations. I really think I am looking at this with a little bit of a different perspective. And so that's motivating within itself. But what will be more motivating is when we start to shift the dial on some aspects. And, you know, if I can walk away from a client workshop and and they want to sit around for another hour and a half and talk about it because they're so engaged, which is what happens. That's really, really rewarding for me. So yeah, there are, there are those elements, but yeah, there have certainly been some challenges and there will continue to be. Mm -hmm. So what's some of your proudest achievements so far? Um, so I've been writing for a retail journal called Inside Retail, and they've also um, so they've been publishing my work as a contributor in this space, which I'm really proud of because it's something new that I hadn't done before. Um, I've got the Australian Retail Association who's also been endorsing, I guess, this being a topic that our retail organisations need to, you know, start to understand a little bit better. So for me, that was really validating. But absolutely, my client workshops have been extraordinary. So I launched my website in November. I had my first corporate client sign up by December. Wow. Um, which was amazing. Um, I've got clients now in government. I've got clients um, in different sectors. And I need to remember that, that that then tells me that the approach I'm taking is actually is working, but perhaps the way I'm talking about this is is also working. So I'm just really... You know, I think um, 
I stepped out of a a permanent corporate role and really started something that was a new baby for me. So, um, yeah, I think it's always good to look back and just be proud of where it's gotten to, but there's a lot more that I want to do. So So what is something that you would tell the younger you if you could like meet the young Natalie who is just about to start her career? What is something, some piece of advice you would give her? I think probably the most important thing where I sit at now in my career is never doubt your authenticity and always try and maintain a perspective and be aware of not changing you to suit the environment that you're working in. Always be aware of what gives you a spark and what gives you um, energy. Be aware of what depletes you as well. And that's the case for everyone in every workplace. But I think for me where I sit now, I feel like I um, am really, really clear on my purpose and um, just who I am. And I don't um, I don't feel that I need to apologise for that. I don't feel that I need to change who I am to do good work. Mm. So I think that's a really, um, yeah, I think that's what I that's what I tell myself. Always keep track of that. Just check in with yourself. Make sure that, you know, the environment you're working in is, is bringing out the best in you um, and self-advocate, you know. Yeah. Self-advocacy is something that we should all be doing um, because it's about being our best selves at work. That was Natalie Phillips-Mason sharing her story as the founder of Inclusive Change and an advocate for neuroinclusivity in workplaces. If you'd like to learn more about her business, you can find her website link in the show notes. The Why Between the Lines is produced by Refresh Marketing. If you have a story you'd like us to help you tell, whether through this podcast or our copywriting services, do get in touch with us through the link in the show notes. Remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any new episodes and do consider leaving a review or a rating if you enjoyed today's interview. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you again soon.